the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and as usual, I'm joined by hosts Rick Lee and Lee Johnson. And this week, we are talking about lazy relativism. But before we get to that and how it all depends, let's uh, <laughs> get everyone's drink orders and rant or raves. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? The weather has turned strangely summery here in Chicago, and so I'm going to go with one of my summer standbys. I'm going to have a vodka cranberry juice. And I am raving this week about the celebration for Joni Mitchell's being awarded the Gershwin Prize for Songwriting. So this is an award that is given out not even every year, and Joni Mitchell was awarded it this year. And they had a celebration, and the celebration was a concert. And I'll just point out two highlights. Annie Lennox doing both sides now, I was like weeping. And then, in order to honor Gershwin, Joni Mitchell did a version of Summertime at the end, which was amazing. So Joni Mitchell, the celebration of her winning the Gershwin Award, it's available on PBS. So check it out. Nice. Lee, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm just going to have an amaretto sour today, and I am ranting, and I'm ranting about sovereign citizens. <laughs> so I was getting an oil change the other day, and while I was sitting in the waiting room, unbeknownst to me, I was sitting beside a sovereign citizen, and I noticed that his <laughs> car had a strange-looking license plate on it. It looked like a fake license plate, and I asked him about it, and he said... We don't actually need a license or registration to drive. You just have to tell them that you're traveling and that you're not driving. And so like any good left liberal sheep, I went home and did my research and I started down a YouTube rabbit hole <laughs> about what in the world is he talking about? And I saw all these videos of quote unquote sovereign citizens being pulled over and arguing with the police about some bizarro, I mean, truly Looney Tune reading of, I guess, the Constitution and interstate travel. <laughs> and there are all these keywords, like you're supposed to say, I'm traveling and not driving. This is a car and not a conveyance. Or I don't know. <laughs> but it is a strange, strange world out there for sovereign citizens and for all the rest of us because of sovereign citizens. So so Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a New York Sour, which is a drink done by Woodford's F&B, kind of walkable distance to my house, although some of my friends argue that it's way too far to be considered walkable. It's a whiskey <laughs> sour with a little bit of red wine on top and it floats on top. So you get two drinks for the price of one, plus you get a little, <laughs> chemist you get a little chemistry experiment in it. And I am raving this week about nurses. My father has just been in the hospital, just got out, things are looking great. I've been in the hospital a lot, and I really appreciate and see that the real people who do the lion's share work that sustains care at the hospital are the nurses, and they put up with so much. Mm -hmm. And also, just side note, I also support the nurses at Maine Health and their attempt to unionize, and Maine Health has spent like a ton of money on anti-union consultants, which if they had that kind of money, you can afford to pay your nurses better. Preach. 
So, Lee, lazy relativism. What does that mean, and what do you want us to talk about? So, on the first day, or in the first week of all my classes, I warn my students against what I have named lazy relativism. And the example I give is of a very common conversation, which we've all been in or seen, in which two people have been at odds for a while. They suspect they're not really going to come to an agreement on the matter at hand. And so one of them says, yeah, agree to disagree, or (laughs) everybody has different opinions on this, or worst of all, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Uh. And it's that last (laughs) iteration in particular that I think is a very good expression of what I mean by lazy relativism. Obviously, I tell my students, if you think something is true and the other person thinks it's false, you cannot possibly believe that what is true for them is true for them and also what is true for you is true for you because that would require you to believe that the same thing is at once both true and false. And, you know, students will sometimes say, well, you know, people can think whatever they want, to which I reply, okay, think a square circle. (laughs) The point is, of course, that when people repeat this insipid dictum of what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me, What they're really meaning to communicate, I think, is that this is a hard conversation. It's come to an impasse. I don't want to argue with you about it anymore, but I also don't want to offend you by Mm. appearing disrespectful. So today, I'd like to talk about why lazy relativism seems to be the go-to disposition for so many when encountering a disagreement. What exactly is lazy about it? Why you really can't think a square circle? And finally, whether or not there are non-lazy forms of relativism. Okay, guys, so in the intro, I described what I'm calling lazy relativism. And I'm wondering if this jives with your experience. Do you see this among your students, among your colleagues, among your elected representatives? Is this something that sounds familiar to you? Well, I'll start, but I have a clarifying question before I start. Is this lazy relativism a relative of a claim that I hear more often from my students, namely, it's just subjective? It's all subjective. I think it is, yeah. Okay, so then I think this is the disease of the thinking of our contemporary students. They're convinced that almost everything is subjective, and therefore they are convinced that what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you, and they don't seem to be bothered by the manifest contradiction of that claim. So yeah, I think it just seems to me like the baseline position of students coming into class. Yeah. On that note, I don't really see it as a a point arrived at after some difficulty, as you suggested. I see it like almost preemptive. People start there. (laughs) And I've noticed it not just about like moral issues or issues of truth, but like one of the other things I've noticed a lot recently is students really reacting strongly to the idea that one can have an interpretation of like a work of art. Let's say, for example, You know, we did our show last season about Casablanca, and we talked about Casablanca being read as kind of this allegory of the U.S. involvement in World War II. Rick becomes sort of an isolationist figure. These sort of things where you just say that this is how this film has been read, students really react like, who's to say it means that? It could mean a million (laughs) different things. It could mean something else to someone else. Like, yes, but the idea that there's an interpretation that is predicated on what the text says – 
that could be established seems like a very alien idea. And instead, we get this idea that everything could mean anything to anyone, mm-hmm. which seems hard because not everything is everything. It just seems strange that people throw up their hands almost immediately that you can't say what anything means. Because to say what anything means is in some sense oppressive mm. to the possible interpretations that must be acknowledged even before they've been uttered. That's the strange thing about it. Even mm. before someone has put forward a different interpretation, we have to respect them even if they don't exist. <laughs> even in their hypothetical <laughs> existence. So before we go too far down the path of grumpy old fart professors <laughs> dunking on students, I do want to say from my perspective, this is not isolated to students. That I see that with everyone across the spectrum. And I think this is a, I agree with Rick that this is the kind of plague of our time. But again, I don't think it's limited to students. Let me ask you this. So I call this lazy relativism and I've been calling it lazy relativism for a long time. Do you think that lazy is a apt adjective here? Well, I think all of us are familiar with philosophers who come eventually to a relativist position. And they go through a number of arguments and look at how knowledge is possible and recognize that all knowledge is located in a specific place and from a specific perspective. And then they come to the conclusion that certain things, and I don't think all things, but certain things are relative. And I would say that position, which I also disagree with, but I think that's a more how would we put it? Hard won position. One has to do some work in order to get there. Whereas what's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. That I think Jason is right is a kind of preemptive, like there's no possibility to decide this and the decision itself is oppressive. I mean, part of the reason that I call it lazy relativism is because I think the people who adopt this disposition don't want to do the work for that hard-won relativism that you just mentioned. So my intuition is that the people who adopt this position don't actually believe it. I don't think that they really believe that everything is subjective, including their own positions, including truths or value judgments that they're stating. And so the lazy part of it is... I don't want to argue about it. I don't want to have to do the work of defending my position. Yeah, and on that point, and going beyond complaining about students, Eric Hayat in his book Humanist Reason talks about this even happening amongst scholars in the humanities. When he's not writing about the humanities, he writes about Chinese literature and culture. He said, like, I think this thing is true. And some friend of his who read this says, do you really want to say that? Do you really want to say this thing is true? And I think there is a certain like, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom on the part of some even scholars. Like I can say my thing, you say your thing. We both agree it's kind of interesting and we never want to get into the argument about who's right and wrong. So I do think there's a certain sense in which even people producing knowledge in the humanities. And I think it's worth bringing up the humanities here, because I think Mm -hmm. the idea that's underlying this kind of relativism, or this, as Rick said, everything's subjective, is this hard and fast distinction between there are things that are measurable, quantifiable, and those things are true and objective. And then there's the whole realm of mushy kind of stuff over here (laughs) in the humanities where it's all just different opinions and so on. Welcome to our soup. (laughs) And underlying this, of course, is another idea, which is that any attempt to insist on something being true 
in this contest or to argue for something could only be understood as a kind of bias Mm -hmm. or a kind of indoctrination. Mm -hmm. That there is a sense that the world of objective truth is quantifiable and in the world of human culture or in the world where people are not measuring things but writing and arguing about things, any attempt to say something is true can only be understood as an attempt to indoctrinate people. I was a big fan of the TV series The Good Wife. And there was a judge, a federal judge, who was a recurring character on that show, who would insist that every lawyer in her courtroom would end any claim they made by saying, in my opinion. (laughs) And so Christine Baranski's character, I can't think of what her name was on the show, but she would push this to like crazy extremes where she would say like the first sentence of the First Amendment is Congress shall make no laws, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, that shows the ridiculousness of it. I mean, the First Amendment does say that or it doesn't. But I wanted to tease out another thread of your point. And Lee, I think you pointed to this earlier. And that is the avoidance of argument. And I'd like to hear what you both think. I feel that our students think like disagreement is a sign of failure, it's uncomfortable, and we should avoid disagreement at all costs. I completely agree. One of the things that I say in my classes often is that it's very important that we recognize that disagreement all by itself does not constitute disrespect. You can respectfully disagree, and you can disrespectfully agree. (laughs) So those are not the same things. But I completely agree with both of you, that there is this assumption that to express a point of view and to say that it's good or right or true or whatever is to, in some way, manifest a bias that is, by being biased, disrespecting anything opposite to that point of view. And therefore, and you know, this gets into the kind of culture war arguments of our current time, you know, shut down any other expression of any other kind of point of view. And I think that that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how disagreement about values happens. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a misunderstanding of something that happens in our normal everyday lives that doesn't really freak us out. You know, so like if three of us are ordering a pizza and one of you says, oh, I want mushrooms on it. And I say, I don't really like mushrooms. You know, we understand that we have different positions here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might be able to argue with me to a certain extent, like, is it a texture thing? Because here at this restaurant, they do this with the mushrooms and they're not slimy or, you know, whatever. And we could talk about that. And so in many ways, we're used to having certain kinds of disagreements. It's just that now, I wonder if we're still in the situation where we have to avoid the conversations about the big three, religion, politics, and, oh. Sex. Sex. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I think that it is about avoiding those tough conversations too, which, you know, leads me to the, I think, obvious question, what are the dangers of this? What are the dangers of not having these conversations? Or having them, but they lead to, well, that's what you think, and I think something else, and 
let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> yeah, which I think is not having a conversation. I right. think it's just two soliloquies happening beside each other. But isn't the result of that, because we have to make some decisions about some things, right? So like if the city of Chicago goes bankrupt, someone has to make some decisions about what to do about it and how we're going to provide goods and services and so on, even if that decision is we're not going to do it anymore. And if we say, well, this is my opinion and you have yours and all of them are equal, then the one with the most power is always going to win that conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think it's occurring to me now that we're also leaving out another deployment of this to avoid conversation, which is what we saw when Trump said there are good people on both sides. Mm. You know, that was a way of not having the conversation about the bad people on one side. Right. You know. <laughs> I mean, I think the real danger is that this notion that we should respect all opinions about all things makes it impossible to say that some things are really right and some things are really wrong, or it makes any attempt to do that appear to be a power move rather than something that is in some sense grounded on some kind of evidence. You know, it, it really excludes the idea that there is, you know, something that I talk about in this class I teach on the humanities, that, you know, there is such a thing as evidence in the humanities. The text says this. Right. And there's room, there's room for reading this in multiple different ways, especially this, because it's a shifter and it, you know, <laughs> does first whatever is, as Hegel pointed out, at first whatever I'm pointing out at the moment. But anyways, <laughs> the point being, there's room, but there's not infinite room. Mm -hmm. You know, there are possibilities, but there are not all possibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you exclude that view, if you exclude the idea that there are limitations of what can be said and what can be demonstrated, then the default position is that the only way to assert different interpretive possibilities is by power. And that has all kinds of, of terrible consequences. Yeah. And again, I think that that is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what is supposed to be happening when there are disagreements about values, interpretations, truths, goods, whatever, which is not that what I'm trying to do is, in some kind of authoritarian way, assert my view onto you. I mean, it seems to me that if I'm actually doing the work of providing evidence, of trying to persuade, of engaging in a genuine good faith conversation with somebody with whom I disagree, the position from which I'm doing that is not one of authoritarian power. Right. It's one of an invitation to a kind of community, right? Like I, right. I think that I want you to understand why I think your position is wrong. I want you to understand why mine is right. And hopefully at the end of this conversation, we'll find ourselves in a kind of communal agreement on one side or the other. Right. And I think this is the reason why the 20th century German philosopher Hannah Arendt points to Socrates as a kind of philosophical model, because what she says is that Socrates goes out in the public. He goes to the marketplace and he hears someone say, I know what the good is. And he says, oh, really? Well, so then tell me. And they have a conversation about this and they do it in public. And Socrates provides arguments and demands that you provide arguments. And the hope is that we could come to some agreement on what the good is because this is required in order for us to be a community, in order for us to provide for our own community, and so on. I think you're rightly in that 
The opposite of this is a situation in which, again, to point to Donald Trump, you know, to say that his inauguration had the largest audience of any inauguration (laughs) ever, which is clearly false. And he knows that it's clearly false, shows that for him, the truth is a power play. Mm. I can force Mm -hmm. this to be true. Mm -hmm. And he can only force it to be true if the rest of us are like, well, you know, truth is relative. What's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. Yeah. And once you open that door, you know, it's not very far till we're like, JFK is still alive and Hillary Clinton is drinking blood and, you know, the deep state are all lizard people. (laughs) JFK Jr., just to be clear on the true facts. (laughs) In my opinion. (laughs) Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Since we all seem to agree that lazy relativism is a pervasive mode of thinking in contemporary society, I would like to ask the question I learned from the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, namely, Who benefits from this? When you start looking for who benefits, then you can find out where this started, who's responsible for this. And so let me ask you both, who's to blame for this and who benefits from this? One thing in the blame issue that I think is worth bringing up in this conversation is the flip side to me of lazy relativism is people arguing about things that truly are subjective matters of opinion, like people arguing about whether or not they enjoyed a movie or whether or not they like X. Like these are things, you know, I mean, I'm not much of a Kantian at all, but I think Kant was right about aesthetic judgments. They feel universalizable. They feel like they should be <laughs> right. true, but they just simply aren't. You know, as Kant would say, it seems like you, you don't want to say like, I really liked that. You want to say that was really good. Right. Mm-hmm. And you want to put it in the universal idiom. But at the end of the day, you can't really make the case conceptually why it was good and why it was something more than you just liking it. And so I I see a strange conflation about the things that are arguable and the things that are not arguable. Like there's like a meme that, but not a meme, but a recurring sort of tweet or something about like, you know, if we're talking difference of opinion in terms of things like how do you like your coffee, then yes, sure, agree to disagree. But if you're talking about whether or not someone qualifies as a person worthy of respect, then no. And it seems to me that partly what's happening, especially in sort of social media version of this, is a complete breakdown of the things that are actually, I will use the word, subjective, Mm -hmm. as they say, (laughs) and the things that go beyond that. And I think that the tendency to conflate the two leads to, in part, the laziness of the relativism, that if you're arguing about everything, then you just want to opt out of arguing about anything, really. 
Yeah. So in my view, in my opinion, (laughs) I would put the blame in three somewhat obvious places, the government, the university and technology. And sort of hearkening back to our conversation about the conversation, the film, the conversation, I do think we can see this kind of starting in the Vietnam Watergate era, this kind of larger mistrust about what authority figures are telling us, whether or not things are actually the way that they're being said, they are, you know, et cetera. And it's only gotten worse since then as more money has gotten into politics and politics has gotten more savvy with its manipulations of truth. I do think the universities are to blame for this as well, and not in a necessarily bad blame way, But in a just, it started there, right? I mean, we've had major revolutions in science, in physics, in mathematics. There's been an influx in the last 40 or 50 years of women and queer people and people of color into the universities, introducing real challenges to long accepted truths and long accepted readings. And I don't think that we've done the accompanying work of teaching students how to deal with competing interpretations and competing accounts of things. So I think that there's, you know, that kind of source too. But also, you know, finally, you know, technology has also advanced. I mean, we've got chat GPT now, we've got deep fakes. I mean, there are good reasons not to trust what your own eyes and ears say and, you know, what you read. And, you know, chat GPT makes up sources Deep fakes show us things and let us hear things that are not real and look real, look verifiable. So I think there are a lot of things to blame for this. I would add, Lee, to your three, a fourth, namely capitalism, and in a very particular way. Because if I think about what are the consequences of me and all of us in general thinking that everything is relative— I think that's a great position for me to take as a consumer, or it's a position that when I take it, I'm a very good consumer. I Mm. could be moved from one day to another, from Nike to Adidas, from cornflakes to Fruit Loops, and that there are no standards or all standards are unique to each individual is exactly the same way we feel about ourselves as consumers. And I remember just maybe 10 years ago, my mom and I were in Walmart and she had this experience that many people do, namely, do we really need so many waffle irons? Like, just just give me the best one. And I don't, I shouldn't be standing here choosing a waffle iron. That's really such a good point, Rick. And it occurs to me now that Now that so much of our interactions with each other are on ad-driven platforms, you know, it is as if all of our interactions with each other become equivalent to, I don't know, choosing a cereal, you know, it's, you know, it's just, so where we get our news is also where everything else is advertised and it all kind of just sort of blends into the same beige relativist muck, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I agree in the sense that, you know, when Marx says at the beginning of capital, you know, capital confronts us with an immense accumulation of commodities. One of the things about a commodity is that all commodities have use value, the particular thing you use them for, they all have exchange value. And the way in which radically different things can all cost 20 bucks, it can be a shirt, it can be gasoline, it can be a meal, it can be a book, 
espousing this or that view, all $20, they're all rendered equivalent. In some sense, it's capital that says before anyone else, oh, it's all relative, right? right? And the relative is the particular use value, particular consumer thing. But I think the other thing about the capital part of this, which I think is useful to bring up, is that you know, since we're talking about the classroom, we're talking about the university, you know, there is an attempt in a classroom to come up with a different standard to evaluate claims other than their price on the market, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And there's an attempt to evaluate that is not the one we're used to. And we're used to this sort of leveling out evaluation performed by capital when it's just its price on the market. And, you know, there are only two different values in capital. There's the exchange value that everything sort of costs. And there's your own particular unique, what commodities you want, what style you want it in. And so to some extent, that interchange of sort of exchangeability and particularity is then sort of translated into everything. Mm. And I think that one of the things that we're trying to do when we talk about philosophy, talk about literature, whatever the case may be, is try to say that there are other ways that things can be evaluated beyond their price and beyond what they mean to you individually. And those other ways are important because as Rick was saying earlier with Socrates, they are what makes us have a society, right? Having some sense of what the truth is beyond a subjective opinion and what the good or right or justice is beyond one's own particular take is what makes it possible for us to live together as something Mm -hmm. other than consumers, And I think one of the positive movements that Lee pointed out belongs to the university in general and maybe to the humanities most of all is the recognition that we used to have a set of universal truths and universal values that once the university opened itself to, as Lee said, queerful people of color, people from other cultures, other languages, and so on, we began to realize that what we thought were universal truths were actually just particular truths masquerading as universal truths. What's true for me as a white man was masquerading as what's true in general. And so there have been really important moves away from that. And so I think it's really difficult, and maybe we haven't done a good job of showing that Once you begin to show that values change, norms change, and maybe even truths change, that that's not the same as what we're calling lazy relativism. And also, that doesn't mean that we leave the contestation of truth and contestation of values, the contestation of norms. Uh, This is just to tease out a little bit Lee's claim about the role of the university in bringing about or opening the door to a lazy relativism, and that we have some more work to do to close that door a little bit behind us. So let's talk a little bit about that work to do, because all three of us have now said, like, we haven't done a good job of preparing people for the landscape that we're in now. And Jason just said, there are other ways to evaluate things. There are other standards or measures by which we can have these conversations. Rick, you just said the same thing. So for the benefit of our listeners, why don't we explain what those are? (laughs) Jason? (laughs) Well, I think the starting point there is, you know, we've been talking about relative, but relative to what? Right. And I think that to some extent, the relativist position And I think I'm agreeing with Rick here, like it's a good starting point. Like if the choice was between sort of the assertion of a universalistic position, that there are these things that are true for everyone versus there are these things that are true to different people, 
it seems to me that one of the things that is useful in sort of moving beyond the relativist position is to ask the question, if, say, at a particular point in time, this view was held by a large number of people, and then it was changed later and was challenged and shifted, now different people think a different thing, then to ask what else was going on, what were the conditions that made such a thing relative? I mean, the problem with the subjective thing, you know, and everything is subjective, is it stops at a place that should be a point of discussion, like what is subjectivity? What produces subjectivity? What makes it so people feel like they have a particular position or are able to evaluate things in a particular way? So I do think that relativist thought, so there's like a line from Lenin that I can't remember, that the relativist thought is the beginning of historical thought. Mm. Mm. And I think that it's that next step that has to be done. It's a difficult step because it involves ultimately recognizing that history includes us and that we are viewing things from a particular place in and time. And that's a that's a hard thing to do. That's a very sort of like Baron Munchausen, pull yourself up, you know, be able to see your own see the ground from which you speak. But that is the sort of antidote to this kind of thinking, recognizing that we are in our positions are relative to something. And that's something I'm just going to call history in this case, and that's a big word, but it's doing a lot of work, but it has to do with the conditions of our perspective. See, but there, Jason, I think you just put your finger on what I would say is the most important step we need to take, and I think we in the university have taken it, but maybe done a bad job of explaining it. Because when you first said that we should avoid the notion that there's something that's true universally I thought, well, but wait a second, there are some things that are true universally. Like, for example, gravity on the Earth is a force that accelerates at 32 feet per second per second. But then, of course, the conditions could alter. And if the conditions were to alter, then it would no longer be true. And there, I think you're pointing to the conditions is exactly where I would go as well, that we need some tools in order to uncover the conditions in which certain things are true or not true, in which certain things can be seen as a value or not seen as a value. And this goes even to individual choices of taste, for example, like why are some jokes dated or, you know, some humor dated? Why are there now some things about which we can't laugh and before we could and in the future we might be able to again? And so I think the move to the conditions for these things to be the case is the first step that we have to explain how we do that and why we do that. I think the first step is to demonstrate to your interlocutor, assuming that your interlocutor is the lazy relativist here, the stakes of their position. And I think many times the best way to do this is just a straightforward reductio ad absurdum, <laughs> right? Just to present them with an exaggerated demonstration of what their position would entail if taken to its extreme ends. So I'll sometimes do this with people when they're saying, you know, agree to disagree or everybody has their own opinion or everything is subjective, you know, and say, 
even mathematics, like how do you get change at the grocery store, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? If it's if mathematics or with my students, you know, in grades, right? Okay, so I'll just, you know, flip a coin at the end of the semester and everybody will get their grade because it's just subjective anyway. And I mean, of course, they think that grades are subjective right. anyway, but right. <laughs> you get the point. But I do, I do think that, that, you know, I mean, maybe it's a little, you know, sleight of hand sort of thing, but I do think that sometimes those are really helpful just practically in conversation to point out to people, because again, I don't believe that lazy relativists are actually relativists. I believe that they're relativists because it's a strategic decision mostly made on the basis of either their commitment to something about which they do not want to see themselves disproven or their uncomfortableness with having an argument. Yeah. And what I do in class often is show, and I think this is what you were pointing to, Lee, is to show that everyone as an individual is practically committed to the opposite of lazy relativism. And what I mean by Mm -hmm. that is a situation very much like what you pointed out, Lee, that when I go to the grocery store and they say, okay, that's $4.95 and I give them a $10 bill, how do I know when to walk away? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is a truth there that is not subjective. It is not relative. And we all insist on it. And my practical life seems to insist on it all the time. And so I think that is, for me, a very powerful argument that practically we can't live such a life. You know, getting back to my earlier point about how these conversations about truth, we really need to shift the thinking about them to not being about a kind of authoritarian assertion or imposition of power, but rather a communitarian project. You know, I mean, even if someone were to come back and say, but mathematics isn't objectively true or universally true, which, you know, there are some merits to that argument, you can still say, right, but we function in our day-to-day lives on the basis of things that are intersubjectively true, right? Which is why, as Rick and Jason just said earlier, as conditions change, the intersubjective evaluation of truths will sometimes Mm -hmm. change and the truths themselves will sometimes change. But there is a merit to acknowledging things as intersubjectively true. Listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. The discussion in the last segment led me to think about one of my former professors, Richard Bernstein, who grew out of the tradition of philosophy known as pragmatism. And pragmatism is a tradition, like the word pragmatic might lead you to believe, that wanted to think about these questions about what truth is and what we should value and so on in terms of what it is we're trying to do 
scientifically, in our everyday lives, politically, socially, and so on. And this led Bernstein to develop what he called, and this is a jargon-filled label, committed fallibilistic pragmatism. What he meant by that is, first, we have a commitment, right? I want to find out what's true. I want to find out what's best. And in order to do this, I come to you and I'm like, hey, do you think we should raise taxes in order to you know, solve our economic problem? And I might have a position on that, that I begin with. But in conversation, I come to realize I need to throw out my foundation and start again. And so that's the fallibilistic part. And for listeners, fallibilistic just means I could be wrong. Right. That, yeah, I could be wrong. And he puts this forward, in fact, as a response to relativism. Mm. He wants to show that there is a position between the notion that there are truths that are universal and true for everyone, and these include truths about what is morally right and what is morally wrong, and so on. That would be what he calls objectivism, and then relativism on the other side. And so he puts forward this notion that, in fact, we do come closer and closer to something like a truth in these kinds of working out together what it is we know, what it is we think, and what it is we want. And on that point, another famous uh, pragmatist philosopher, Richard Rorty, wrote an essay in 1980. It's titled Pragmatism, Relativism, and Irrationalism. I'm just going to quote a passage from it. He says, quote, what people call relativism is the view that every belief on a certain topic or perhaps about any topic is as good as every other, and no one holds this view. Except for the occasional cooperative freshman, one cannot find anybody who says that two incompatible positions on an important topic are equally good. The philosophers who get called relativists are those who say that the grounds for choosing between such opinions are less algorithmic than had been thought. Now, I think, again, this is about an emphasis on making the argument for positions that are not universally infallibly right. true, but for which there are good reasons to prefer one over the other. But that puts a lot of pressure on what counts as good reasons. And I think philosophically, mm -hmm. well, what do you mean by good reasons? <sighs> God damn it. <laughs> and I would say, I think there is an answer to that. I could tell you what I think I mean by good reasons, and then you could try to convince me that what I, in fact, think are good reasons are not good reasons. And so it's right. sort of conversation and struggle committed to the truth all the way down. I have to be committed to truth, but I don't have to be committed to this truth. Yeah, and this is the danger with preempting that discussion with lazy relativism by saying, I won't hear yes. reasons. And there's a difference between a long regress and an infinite regress. <laughs> like, just because it's going to take time to work out the conditions for the conditions, the reasons for the reasons, doesn't mean that there are none or that it's simply irresolvable. I was struck by what you said earlier, Rick, in terms of this idea, which has come up in a lot of our discussions of this, of like some sense of a common something, right? We're engaged in this in a common way. And I think this is one of the things, to go back to something you said earlier, Rick, about who benefits from this. And I think mm. one of the things that is worth talking about I feel like, in my opinion, uh, about in this in this conversation, is that when you lose that common something, like when people talk about reading to disagree about politics or having some respect for diversity of opinions, and I think that is true. 
when people are agreed, like, what is the best way to produce a society that is equal and just to everyone? And people have different ways of thinking how that should be done, what things you should focus on. And in that sense, I think like, okay, there should be room for some diversity there. But mm-hmm. when people opt out of that commonality and their political position is what is the best way to realize benefits for me or this group of people to which I belong at the expense of everyone else, then they have fallen out of that common search. So that at that point, you know, it's no longer the sort of agree to disagree or like let a thousand flowers bloom sort of thing. And it is about recognizing that there's a hard division which has come in there. And I think some of what is happening is sort of the weaponization of a certain kind of diversity has to do with people wanting to opt out of that common struggle, right? In the sense that they no longer want to be part of the common search for truth or justice, and they want to be part of what benefits them, right? It goes back to, as you were saying earlier about the Trump and the power move. I think that the sort of assertion that truth is a power move is also an assertion of, I'm not interested in the common ground we might share I'm only interested in what works for me. Mm. You're really pointing out something very interesting that I had not thought of before, Jason, which is that often the lazy relativist is the one who is most confident that truth is not relative, is the one who believes that their truth is an authority and the refusal to have a conversation about it with this kind of sleight of hand of, well, everything, you know, what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me is just a way of preserving their position of authority or power. And to this extent, I actually think one of the plagues, not only on our society, but on the Supreme Court in particular right now is lazy relativism. And the worst lazy relativist on the Supreme Court is Clarence Thomas. And that sounds weird because Clarence Thomas is such a you know, rigorously uncompromising figure, but also a figure that never has a conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, never asks any questions, never explains himself, right? Knows that he is in the majority and he has the power and he can wave his hand at the relative truths of the other eight justices, but that hand waving that I'm not going to engage in a conversation or explain myself or really, you know, inquire after your explanations is just a way of acknowledging that he has an authoritarian truth that is going to prevail anyway. Right. I mean, everything is relative. Everything is subjective. Is a universal claim that never wants to own up to its status as a universal claim. It's hoping that you won't notice its claim for universality because of the fact that it opts out of the argument. But it is a strong claim. The thing about the everything is relative is that it reserves a status for itself that it won't acknowledge and won't grant to any other claim. It's a universal claim. Everything is relative is a universal claim. Mm, now uh, you're convincing me that maybe lazy is not the right adjective for this kind well, of it's, relativism. Yeah. But I think lazy is the right adjective because when Jason says, you know, if you point out that the claim everything is relative is not itself relative, I often find the response I get to that is, who cares? Mm. Or isn't the principle, you know, that something cannot be both true and false at the same time, isn't that also relative? And why do I have to abide by it? So when you say you can't think square circle, I'm thinking it now. Get off my back. (laughs) And so what I find scary in the pervasiveness of lazy relativism 
is it leads to the evacuation of thought itself. And so then all decisions are made not on the basis of thinking them through and talking them out and even, God forbid, argue about them and try to convince one another about them. It's just left to a region in which thought has no role to play. And I find that extremely frightening. And I find that to be Clarence Thomas's. He's the king of that land, of the land where there is no thinking. And it gets you yacht trips. It gets you. <laughs> <laughs> and private jets. Yeah. <laughs> the best locations for laziness. <laughs> I'm sorry, but the, the square circle thing is stuck in my craw. I mean, I wonder sometimes whether we let lazy relativists off too easy because at some point, uh, if people say, I am thinking a square circle right now, I feel obligated to say, describe to me right. what you're thinking, right? I mean, because, you know, the definition of a Square is an object with four sides and four angles. The definition of a circle is an object with no sides or angles. How are you thinking a square circle, right? And I think that this also happens in politics, that especially on the left, we just don't force the right to articulate the absurdity of some of their positions. And I think, like, unfortunately, that's because we're nicer. <laughs> but we also fall into this disagreement, disrespect, conflation too often. But each of us has raised Trump and he's come up several times. What I find most distressing is the fact that even if one were to point out Jim Jordan's manifest contradictions and not let someone like Jim Jordan off the hook, a person like him, a person like Donald Trump just doesn't give a shit. Like that used to be embarrassing and it's not anymore. Mm. And the fact that the relativist position has now taken hold of everyone, even people who want to put down moral absolutes like abortion is wrong, they're the most relativistic of all because they will not give an account of their position. They will not provide reasons mm. for their position. And then it just becomes, as I said earlier, a play of pure power. I have the power now, and so you shut up. Mm -hmm. Because isn't that what lazy relativism is? As you started out, Lee, it's a conversation stopper. It's telling you, yeah. not only I don't want to talk about it, but I don't want you to talk about it. Yeah. Do you think that lazy relativists make everything a value judgment? Like, Do you think that one move of lazy relativism is to say there are no facts, there are only Value. I mean, is that the same thing as saying, in my opinion? There are no facts, there are only values, and values are relative. Right, right, right. No, I, I feel like that's true. Well, okay, and there's another thing. I just said, I feel like that's true. Yeah. And it's this feeling business that I think also gets lazy relativism going. Yeah, this was Stephen Colbert's truthiness definition, right? <laughs> it, fe it feels true. And I feel it in my gut, and the gut has more nerve endings than the brain. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> On that point, I do sometimes prod my students not to say, I think that or I feel that, but I argue that. And, you know, I mean, it's a ham-handed way of trying to correct something else but i i feel like it's i feel like <laughs> I, I would argue that it's a good practice to practice because it just saying those words changes your approach to what you're right. stating and and right. i'm the same way with you know let's say we're reading thomas aquinas thomas aquinas believes that 
And I want to point out, well, tell me what you mean by belief, because I see a rigorous argument here, and I think the conclusion of an argument is not a belief. In my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) This is never going to get old. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the belief thing shows that this – I sense that if you take the lazy relativist (laughs) – We're falling off the bar stools here, guys. If you take the lazy relativist position, the only way to persuade anyone of anything is to indoctrinate them. You know, mm. and I think that's I think about the way in which the language in a lot of these bills in Florida and Texas that are trying to outlaw certain types of teaching, critical race theory, etc. One of the things that comes up again and again is like the course cannot demand any kind of beliefs of a student. Mm. And mm-hmm. to me it seems very strange. I'm like, why would I I, I never I don't care what anyone believes in my class. (laughs) Um, It's, you know, that's not what philosophy is about. But that's exactly the strategy that these right-wing student groups and, you know, and the big money that's backing them, that's exactly the strategy that they use is to say, I'm in this class, I have a liberal professor, he's not allowing or she's not allowing me to believe what I want to believe, to hold the truths that I want to hold. And weirdly, what those organizations are in fact doing is not allowing the professor to do their job, not allowing the professor to present views that, you know, have merit. Right, right. And in some sense, those groups are really more on the side of the kind of relativistic corruption than the supposed postmodernists that they constantly criticize. Like once you start saying things you need to respect like viewpoint diversity, you're pretty much affirming a certain kind of relativism. Right. And Mm -hmm. the idea that these views should be respected regardless of what kind of justification or argument one can give from them is to pretty much throw up your hands and say everything is permissible. And it's strange to see that coming from the people who supposedly, on the other hand, will say they want to defend Western civilization, blah, 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 to say that everything must be permissible at the same time. Right. Because I also want to say that there are a diversity of viewpoints. You know, there is viewpoint diversity. Maybe the strategy I need to take is, you know, it doesn't count as a viewpoint if there's no argument. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I think if you can't provide reasons for it, but also this goes back to something Jason said earlier, that there are multiple viewpoints, but there clearly are not infinite. Mm -hmm. If I'm reading Plato's Republic and talking about the allegory of the cave, and you say, well, in my opinion, it's about how to make cheese— you know, that, that, no, I, I'm sorry. And and there I, I go back to my old adage that opinions are like buttholes. Oh, everyone has one and almost all of them stink. And then Tucker Carlson will have a special on Fox News tonight that's like, DePaul professor who frequently uses butthole refuses students. And Tucker, their love Tucker, of I frequently use it in many ways. <laughs> oh, no. all right guys so the bartender says that in her opinion it is time for us to leave (laughs) and unfortunately the closing time is not up to any of our opinions so uh before we roll out of here any final thoughts on lazy relativism rick let me go to you first yeah I want to pick up something, Lee, you said about the fear of disagreement. And I want to point out that 
I mean, while the three of us often agree about things, we have had some significant disagreements about a number of issues. And while I may not have come all the way to the position that one or the other of you is arguing for, I've now had to think about why it is I'm committed to my position and what exactly I'm committed to my position for and what the stakes are. And I think that there is something really important in disagreement. And yet that disagreement is prevented by lazy relativism. And therefore, I think the struggle for the truth is stopped. And I think that is dangerous and that hurts all of us. Jason? Well, I think after having this conversation, I'm thinking more about we should just acknowledge that lazy relativism is the spirit of our times. And rather than complain about it, do more to kind of address it and begin to sort of work from it. Because mm. I do think it is a starting point. And I view it very dialectically, like it has positive aspects to it. It's often grounded sometimes in a feeling of respect for others, often grounded in a recognition that the supposed just simple assertion of something as like universally true is to use the jargon of our times, problematic. And so I think it is a starting point that is worth working from rather than sort of bemoaning it as kids these days. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Lee? This conversation in particular has really made me rethink the fact that I call this lazy mm. relativism. I think what has come out in this conversation is that there's something quite consciously strategic about deploying this position often, not all the time, but often, and it might not actually be lazy. But I will say to those of you out there who are lazy relativists that disagreement can be really fun. Yeah. And yeah. it is an excellent way to refine and sharpen your own thinking. And the more of these conversations that you can get in, I think the more you will find that lazy relativism is a ultimately dissatisfactory disposition to hold. So I would say, like, don't avoid these conversations. I mean, maybe don't get in them with me because I think disagreements are really fun. So, <laughs> like, uh, don't start off with somebody like me, but, you know, try to have these conversations instead of just throwing up your hands in the kind of both sidesism. Yeah. Remember, people, we are trained professionals. <laughs> Do not try this at home. No, try it at home, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we are trained professionals. That being said, do we each get our own ride home or can I gather up a common ride for all of us? Well, I'm not driving, I'm traveling. So. <laughs> I'll go in the car with you, but I'm going to have my own interpretation of what directions we should take and be yelling them the whole time. <laughs> Speaking of different values, uh, we also have a Patreon page that you can <laughs> donate some money to, which we will calculate according to the universal intersubjectively agreed upon definition of numbers. <laughs> so please do visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions where you can support this podcast. Yeah, our web host keeps denying our claim that in our opinion, we've already paid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, I'll All catch right. you next time. Good night. Good night. Good night.